Our sermon today is taken from Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 8. Here's the word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be confirmed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Thus says the Lord. Let us pray for the preaching of God's word. Blessed are you, Lord, King of the universe. You are God who is beyond all praising, beyond our imagination, impossible for us to comprehend. But you have revealed yourself to us in your will and your word. Father, as we meditate today upon your word and think of what your servant Paul has taught us about how to live in a way that's worthy of you, I pray that you can send your Holy Spirit to open up our hearts and give us ears that hear, that we may apply what is uh, written and know you more, Lord. And may the meditations of our hearts and the word of our mouths be acceptable in your sight. Amen. As someone who's grown up in a Christian family, does ministry full-time, and have interacted with all sorts of Christians, I've noticed that there are two extremes that we tend to fall into with regards to doctrine or theology, right? There's, on the one hand, Christian communities that are pretty allergic to doctrine, those of us who are uncomfortable uh, with theology, seeing it as this thing that ends up dividing God's people and ultimately prevents us from loving God and loving others. Those of us who want to resist any labels or being identified with any kind of tradition, but would also want to say we're just Christians who simply believe in the Bible. But on the other hand, there are those of us who think that our doctrine is the be-all and end-all of our Christianity. Those of us who would judge the quality of a particular Christian or church well, based on whether or not they have doctrine that lives up to our own understanding of the Bible. I myself have personally fallen to both of these extremes at different points of my Christian life, and I have found that both of these extremes are unhelpful because we either become content with only a superficial understanding of the gospel, focusing instead on our good works and effectiveness in ministry, or we can become arrogant but our own perspective and theology and tradition, right? simplistically equating spiritual growth to growth and doctrinal sophistication and Bible knowledge. Because if we look at the Bible as a whole, we must conclude that neither of this 
got it right. For in the Bible, growth in doctrine and practice are not seen as two different things, but two aspects of the Christian life. They can never be separated, inextricably linked. So today, we're going to be continuing on our series in the book of Romans, and we'll be entering into the closing section of the book of Romans. And Paul begins to wrap up his teachings of the book of Romans by clarifying for us exactly this, the relationship between doctrine and the Christian life. And if you've been following along with us in the book of Romans, in chapters 1 to 11, we were just exposed to what many would consider to be the fullest and clearest explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. So in our text here, we see that Paul begins to clarify the so what of the Holy Spirit-inspired doctrine that he just taught. And from this, we can notice that Paul has at least three things um, that he tells us happens if we really understand true theology, right? Our three points. True theology changes how we think about, one, our Christian lives, two, our value as people, and three, our life's calling. Let me repeat that. Our three points. True theology changes how we think about, one, our lives as a whole, two, our value as people, and three, our life's calling. If you have your Bibles ready, I'd encourage you all to turn to this passage because I'll be referring to it pretty closely. Romans 12, uh, verse 1 to 8. Let's get into it. Point one, true theology changes how we think about our lives as a whole. So as we were saying, right, Paul had just finished giving us the greatest treatise on the doctrine of salvation that's ever been written, right? Like the best theology lesson ever. And Paul actually just ended this lesson with a doxology, this outburst of praise towards the depths of the wisdom and knowledge of God. In the last verse of chapter 11, we see Paul puts God in his proper place where he says, for from him, through him, and to him are all things. Waking up us to the fact that there's nothing in creation that does not belong to him. God's authority and power is universal. There's not one square inch, not one molecule over which God does not declare mine. And there's not a single thing that any of us can give to him or tell him. Yet this great God has given us everything, even the gift of salvation by personally dying for us on the cross, when we're actually deserving of the exact opposite, right? Judgment for our sins. And this is what Paul had in mind when he begins chapter 12 by prefacing what he was about to tell us um, by saying that what he's about to, what we are supposed to do, rather, is supposed to be done by the mercies of God. That who God is and what God had done for us already should motivate us to respond in this way. Then Paul begins to spell out, right, what is the actually appropriate response to the mercies of God that we receive by appealing to us to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Those from the Jewish background in Rome um, that Paul is writing to would immediately, would immediately recognize that Paul was using a temple metaphor here, right? Because as some of you might be aware, in the Old Testament, the Jews were encouraged to offer animal sacrifices to God as a sign of gratitude to God. And these animals would have to be physically perfect specimens without blemishes, or spots, right? It'll be some of the most valuable and expensive things that someone could own back in those days. And these animals would be fully given to God to be completely burned. But now, Paul is saying, in light of what Christ has done, we no longer bring these perfect animals to God as sacrifices, but our own bodies to be given fully to God to show gratitude. 
And as in the case of animals, we should likewise seek to be holy and acceptable to God, free from the blemishes of sin that causes the hostility between us and God in the first place. And I must emphasize here that this sacrifice is not meant to, uh, to be presented anxiously or under duress to earn God's favor or somehow cover our sins, but cheerfully in thanksgiving because the sacrifice for our sins has already been made for us, right? By Christ on our behalf. So we're good with God already and this is how we respond. And it is also interesting though that here Paul specifies that what is offered as a sacrifice is the body. Right? Not the heart, not the soul, not the mind, but the body. Right? It is the very body whose members Paul already talked about earlier in chapter 3 and chapter 6, we use as instruments of unrighteousness. Paul is talking about um, our deceitful tongues, our venomous lips, our eyes that do not fear God, meaning he is talking about our external behaviors. What Paul is doing is Paul is appealing to us to dedicate all of our bodily activities unto the Lord that we make a conscious, intentional, and willing response to the gospel that we believe in by making every effort to set apart every part of our body to God, such that our lives will be holy and pleasing to God, acceptable to Him. And this dedication, Paul says, is our spiritual worship. Now, the word spiritual here in Greek is actually something more like logical or rational. Right? So what Paul is really saying is that if we really believe the truth of the gospel he just broke down for us in the past 11 chapters, if we really believe that we were hopelessly lost in our sins, and if it were not for God's love for us and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we would have no chance of escaping judgment, the only appropriate response to this great gift is to show appreciation and reciprocate to this gift by making every effort not to grieve him with the sin that, ca that caused us hostility with God and that Christ had to die for. Right? And I think, in principle, we as humans intuitively know that this is true, right? Because if a human being makes a great sacrifice to do us a great service, we would naturally be willing to honor that sacrifice and make it worth it. Even something as simple as like knowing that your mom had made uh, food and she worked all night and worked really hard for it, you would want to say thank you to her. You would want to show her that you enjoy what she has done for you, likewise, to God with our lives. And while it is undeniable that responding properly to this mercy that God gives us requires great effort and great moral effort, it cannot be reduced to basically just trying harder to modify our behavior. Right? But verse 2 here actually tells us that becoming a living sacrifice that is acceptable to God involves a more fundamental change. That it means that we are not conformed to the patterns of this world, but are transformed by the renewal of the mind. You see, Paul here is not telling us Christians to simply outwardly act more like Christians. But he is pointing out that truly believing in the gospel means that there is a way in which that we become really distinct from the world. That the gospel has so captured our imaginations, fills our thoughts, right? That what governs our decisions, what ultimately becomes our first love and priorities, what fills our mind has been transformed. Our minds are renewed. Now, Paul is not telling us here to remove ourselves from society and not participate in it, right? Like, like the Amish or something. But we still must live in the world, although we are not of it. You see, 
Because it's no secret that the world operates under different principles that simply and simply has different priorities than what the Bible teaches. Where the spirit of the age tells us to worship the idol of ourselves, to regard self-actualization as the highest good, to fight for our own abilities to pursue our own happiness and pleasure and to maximize our lives here on earth. The Bible tells us that the glory of God is the highest good, to consider others greater than ourselves and that our true home is what our Father in heaven. And we have genuinely believed that no part of our lives is left untouched. Necessarily, how we view our wealth and possession, our sexual ethics, our business practices, everything will be transformed and it should reflect this difference. See, and friends, this renewal of the mind does not just happen instantly like that, but it's a lifelong process. Right? That's why Paul goes on to say that by testing, we can discern the will of God and know what is acceptable and good and perfect. It is this continual process of being filled with God's word, meditating on it, internalizing it, practicing it, taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ, such that you can increasingly put to death the futile thoughts of our sinful minds and become more intuitively be able to think God's thoughts after him. You see, just like when you get to know someone a lot better, right? at first they have to communicate clearly what they like and don't like, but as you get to know them, you just know whether or not they like something or not. Likewise with God, as we get to know Him, right? So friends, if we really understand the doctrines of grace, right, good and true theology, it will involve a holistic transformation, right? Where we understand that we are not our own, but belong body and soul to Jesus Christ, purchased us by His blood. So we see our lives are no longer about our own longing and desires, but about pleasing Christ. That it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so therefore, necessarily, how we value ourselves will also change, which is exactly what Paul explains in the next point. Point two, true theology changes how we think of our value as people. We see then, in verse 3, that Paul gives us the principle of how we should see ourselves if our minds has been truly renewed in this act of presenting ourselves as sacrifices in spiritual worship. That we must not think of ourselves higher than we ought to think, but to think with this sober judgment. See, in this one pity statement, Paul warns us against the two dangers that we can fall into when we think of ourselves. On the one hand, he clearly warns us against the human tendency, the natural human tendency, to be proud and conceited. You see, this is our problem from the start, isn't it? If we think of the story of Adam and Eve in the garden, why they chose to disobey God was because the enemy was able to convince them that they could be higher than their station, higher than what God had created them to be. Satan promised that if they ate the fruit, that they could be like God. And this is particularly evident, isn't it? like in the culture that we live in, where the self is elevated as the center of the universe, especially in the secular world where our significance, intelligence, and, our so, and abilities are so exaggerated that we become our own gods and saviors. We become our own moral authority and judges. Life becomes about meeting our needs, accomplishing our goals, our happiness, our pleasure, and the result of that is that we end up idolizing freedom and independence leading to this self-centered and egocentric life. 
And the metaphor Paul uses to describe the state is drunkenness. If you've been around enough drunk people, you realize that one thing that's characteristic of the state is that we suddenly find the audacity to do something stupid that we end up regretting because we're not aware of our limitations and we're unaware of the impact of our actions towards other people. And even most world religions are aware of this, right? Particularly Buddhism, actually, is really aware of this. And, and we know that the problems of the world ultimately come, a lot of it, from this inflated view of self. But unlike other religions, right, what Paul means by soberly thinking about ourselves is not completely denying ourselves, right, encouraging us to live this ascetic, self-deprecating life, like to just become monks and nuns, but it is to look at our lives according to the measure of our faith. And what this certainly does not mean is that we can think more highly of ourselves the more faith we have, as if being more religious means that we are better people. Paul has already at length demonstrated for us in the book of Romans that this is not the case. Rather, it is about being theologically informed about our identity. It means seeing ourselves as God sees us, created in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made as the masterpiece of his creation, and so deserving all the dignity, respect, and honor worthy of being God's representative on earth. And it means we're beloved by God and He loves us so deeply that He would die for us in order that we may know Him. But it is also that we are so uh, deeply sinful and flawed that God needed to die for us in the first place. That we would be nobody and nowhere apart from God's grace. But in His grace, we have been adopted as His children and are now co-heirs with Christ. You see, viewing ourselves biblically makes us at the same time genuinely humble and bold. It must give us this balanced view of the self because my own tendency is to swing between these two extremes, right? Thinking of myself as great when things are going well and garbage when things are not. So through theology will keep us grounded, right? Having our minds renewed that we may learn to rest in God's opinion of us and not anybody else's, especially not our own. And then you can see then in verse uh, 4 and 5, Paul tells us what this sober judgment about ourselves should lead us to conclude, especially in the context of the church. And Paul here uses a metaphor that he's used elsewhere um, in his letters about the people of God, the metaphor of the body. And he repeats himself in these verses, emphasizing that we therefore are one body. So not only that having a true theology of the self should give us both humility and boldness about our own self-image, but it also means that we see ourselves not primarily as individuals, but as being united and identified with the greater collective, the body of Christ, the church. Right? So our faith does not only reconcile us to God, but in a very real way, it reconciles us to each other that we have become part of a new humanity, part of the one and the same covenant family. Right? Remember, if you've been following along with us in our series in the book of Romans, that the church that Paul was writing to was suffering uh, quite a few divisions, mainly along um, cultural and socioeconomic lines. There were tensions between the Christians from the Jewish backgrounds and the Gentile background, non-Jewish backgrounds. So when Paul identifies all the members um, of the church to be one in the same body, he is hammering home the fact 
that all of these divisions have no place in the body of Christ. That in the body of Christ, it must not matter anymore whether you're Jew or Greek, rich or poor, black or white, Chinese or Indonesian, but we are all, as Paul has identified in the beginning of this letter, beloved by God and are called to be saints. Right? Not that whatever background we come from is irrelevant, because indeed, this background gives us a unique perspective through which we uh, understand and receive the gospel and even communicate it. But our identity is not primarily placed in our socioeconomic background or social class. But in fact, we have individually, verse 5 says, become members of one another. We exist as one unit, interdependent, interrelated, where there should be no distinction between my individual particular group's good and the good of the entire body of Christ. Because we are called as one to love God and also as one to serve and be served by one another. So in a very real way, I am more unified with my fellow Christian in Zimbabwe than I am with a Batak non-Christian. So true theology does not only sober me up to the fact and not make me think highly of myself or my tribe or social class than any other, but it also gives us that understanding that we are all one and the same in Christ. So important to remember in light of the recent events that we know and have seen all over the news. Yet, the fact that we're so profoundly united to one another does not mean that we throw out all our individuality either. The Bible does not tell us that we all have to be this homogenous blob that has the same lifestyle, talks the same way, or dresses the same way. Paul clearly states that though we are one body, we have different members and we do not all have the same function. Highlighting the fact that God has created us all uniquely, coming from different backgrounds, having different gifts and competencies. But God designed us with these differences to serve and perfect one another. None of us are good enough at everything to be the super Christian because each of us has our shortcomings and blind spots. And how we are to leverage these differences for, the, for God's glory is what Paul talks about next. Right? Point three, true theology changes how we think about our life. It's calling. So lastly, in our text, we can observe uh, in verse six to eight that Paul highlights for us what he considers to be the distinction, the meaningful distinction between Christians that should not be minimized, but actually highlighted and celebrated. When he says in verse 6 that each member of the body of Christ has gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us. Now, Paul had already used this phrase earlier in verse 3, and then it was referring to Paul's unique role in the body of Christ as an apostle. Right? And therefore, was given the Holy Spirit and the inspiration uh, and authority to instruct God's people. And what Paul brings into view here by calling his own gift as a grace that's been given, just like the gifts that everyone else has, is the fact that whatever gift we have does not elevate us above anybody else. These gifts were given by grace. We did nothing to earn it. Therefore, there is no re- it is no reason for boasting, we don't get to congratulate ourselves for any of these gifts, but all glory be to Christ. So at the same time as equalizing the value of these gifts, 
Paul's intention here in going on to list a few of these gifts that we'll talk about shortly is to encourage the church to discover these gifts within themselves and to exercise them for the good of the body of Christ, the church. Because we can notice that Paul follows his general pattern in his instruction, in, in his list of gifts, right? If you have this gift, then use it. And for some of them, right, uh, he gives them instructions as to how to do it faithfully. So these gifts that Paul mentions in this passage is not an exhaustive list of the gifts of the Spirit, but there are samplings of which there are other lists of the gifts, such as 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, that mention the gifts that are not listed here. And I think Paul's point here is not to give the Roman church an exhaustive list of the gifts, but examples of these gifts so that they know what kinds of things qualifies as gifts. Right? And I got to clarify here that the gifts of the Spirit is not the same as the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit are things that we all can have in Christ, that all believers can grow spiritually into. But the gifts of the Spirit are the unique ways that God has equipped us to serve Him. So, since Paul lists them in this text, um, I'm going to quickly spread through these gifts. We're not going to have time to talk about all of them in detail. So we get a better understanding about what these gifts are. And maybe there are some that uh, you can identify you might have. And Paul lists seven gifts here. The first is prophecy. And, and this uh, is definitely the one on the list that would cause the most debate. But I think biblically, I can confidently say that this is not talking about being able to predict the future or some kind of fortune telling, nor is it being able to know things about people in this mystical and spooky way, nor is it God telling us something that he doesn't tell anyone else. But it has something to do with uh, communicating God's word, communicating divine truth. And it is supposed to be done according to the uh, proportion or literally analogy of their faith. Meaning that when it did happen, it must always be tested and found to be consistent with biblical truth. However, I must clarify as to not alarm the young reformed and restless that may be among us, that it is the conviction of this church that the gift of prophecy, at least the way Paul talks about it, uh, does not happen anymore. And it has to do with the fact that the Bible is complete. And if you're really curious and you really wanna know more about this, we're happy to interact with you. So fill out a connect card and we'll get back to you. Okay. The second one is service. Right? The Greek word here is diakonia. Right? This means uh, someone who is really good at serving someone, at making someone's life better, contributing to the good of someone or something. Someone who doesn't need the spotlights but are just great teammates. Right? Enjoying more to give them an assist than to score, to use a sports analogy. Third here, teaching. This is someone who is able to make truth clear and understandable while finding joy in leading someone towards finding truth. This can happen in specific groups of people, men, women, adults, you know, children, or in specific contexts, big groups, small groups, uh, schools, church, all sorts of contexts. The fourth, exhorting. Uh, the Greek verb here literally means someone who walks alongside of. This is someone who has the emotional capacity and intelligence just to be present with someone in their time of need. Someone who knows the right things to say or do to lift our spirits. Someone who has extraordinary empathy for people. In the fifth here, in the ESV, it says contributing. And most translations translate it also as giving. This is someone who uh, enjoys giving while being thoughtful and wise about their giving. And those who have been given the capacity to do this, Paul clarifies, 
to do this generously. And again, the Greek word here also has this sense of being sincere. So it's not only about the amount, right, but the manner of our giving without strings, without strings attached or any self-serving motives. Sex leadership, this is someone who has charisma naturally and people, who, uh, and people would naturally want to follow this person. And one who has this gift must do it with zeal or diligence. Right? They should lead in a way that is intentional, showing passion and enthusiasm for their goals while taking great care over those who follow him and who's leading. And finally, seventh, we can also see uh, acts of mercy. This is talking about those who are particularly sensitive to those who are needy and suffering and are moved to genuinely, um, personally meet those needs. Those who have great compassion towards the poor, the weak, the sick, the lonely, and those who are faithful in exercising these gifts must do so, Paul says, cheerfully. Right? They're not weighed down by the fact that uh, their actions might not be impactful as they thought. Right? It brings them joy to contribute to this need in whatever small way uh, they can, even if you cannot see the fruit there necessarily. Right? And those who have these gifts would see giving more of a delight that they get to do, not as a duty that they got to do. Okay, so now friends, while someone might have one or more of these gifts, Paul is certainly saying that nobody has all of them. That, and that's why we need each other because we are one body. We're meant to be interdependent to one another, right? Since we are one body, the body will be incomplete if any one of these gifts, if your gift is missing from the church. So we can never regard any gift as more important or valuable than any other. And we can never elevate someone who has a particular gift to be more um, awesome or, or more praiseworthy. Right? So this completely undermines our tendency to compare ourselves with one another. This unnecessarily competitive culture and trying to outdo one another, but enables us to rejoice and celebrate the beautiful ways God has uni uniquely created every single one of us, while feeling genuinely blessed by the way God has blessed us through their giftings. And while Paul does talk about these gifts in the context of the local church, and, uh, and these are indeed gifts that are needed by the local church, however, we're not limited to using these gifts within the institutional church, right? But what Paul clearly does insinuate is that these gifts are meant to serve the larger capital C church, the totality of those who follow Christ. So we can exercise these gifts anywhere, but always for the good of God's people. In other words, this is what Paul thinks is the calling of particular believers. To love God by leveraging the unique way God has created them to serve his family. So in considering our calling, we would do well to mimic the words of John F. Kennedy, to ask not what the church, capital C, can do for you, but ask what you can do for the church. But again, not saying that we all have to go into full-time ministry or that ministry takes priority over everything else in our lives. But what I am trying to say is that if we are really trying to present our lives as sacrifices that it's, and, and we are really having our mind renewed, what we should be aiming to do in every season in our lives is to optimally steward the gifts that God has given us graciously in order that we may bless gather and perfect God's people for the glory of God in whatever context we may be 
whatever in whatever position we may be in. So, brothers and sisters, Paul here in these eight verses has given us a whole new paradigm as to how to think our lives. We no longer live for ourselves, but are presenting our whole lives as living sacrifices to God, right? being holy and blameless both in our internal thoughts and our external actions. We no longer find our ultimate value and our uniqueness or individuality or uh, superiority, but we can humbly rejoice in the fact that Christ has redeemed us and we are now part of his body. And the unique giftings that God has given us is not to elevate ourselves, but we are called to use it to serve and love the family of God. This is hard and counterintuitive, and the culture and the world that we're living in is constantly telling us to do otherwise. This is why it is impossible to do this without ultimately being frustrated or burning out if we are relying on our own strengths. If we have not understand, understood rather, true theology, that we are those who have already been given mercy, whom our God has already died for and loved, those who are already blessed by God and are not trying to earn his blessing, but are already blessed to be a blessing. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, you are so gracious to us in sending your Son to die on the cross, in elevating we lowly, undeserving sinners high above our stations to be worthy of someone whom you have called Son, worthy of someone uh, who you have tasked to do your work here on earth, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for all of the graces you've given us. Thank you for uh, the ways you've uniquely created us. And thank you for the community and the family that you've put us in under your name. Lord, allow us to continue to have our minds renewed, to look at you and what you have done for us and use that as the basis of our actions and our decisions, that we may love one another, serve one another as you have called us to and equipped us to in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.